Hi guys, it's Dina McKay and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, the work they're currently doing, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. On this episode, I have Wayne Sutton and Melinda Epler of Change Catalyst. We discuss the uniqueness of their tech conference, which is called Tech Inclusion, their new role at Backstage Capital of Arlen Hamilton and her team, how diversity and inclusion affects individuals at all levels, even the executive level, and most importantly, the importance of mental health within the tech industry. One more thing I have to tell you is that Black Tech Unplugged is now available on Spotify. So you can find all episodes on Spotify as well as SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, and Apple Podcast. I hope you enjoy episode 20. And if you do, make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes today. Now let's get it. everyone. I'm back with two special guests, Wayne and Melinda of Change Catalyst. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, how's it going? So to get started, I want you to tell my listeners, you both are the co-founders of Change Catalyst, what your company is. Hey, so Change Catalyst, we focus on creating an inclusive tech ecosystem. And uh, we do that through events, roundtables, workshops, and strategic advising. Change Catalyst started you know, really out of uh, a need to focus on solutions in the tech industry to solve diversity and inclusion in tech, especially in the, in the workforce, but also look at the ecosystem as a broad. And from your perspective, what does Change Catalyst, what do you guys stand for and what are you going up against? Because there's obviously a, there's a lot of issues within the tech industry, diversity and inclusion being one of them, which I know is your focus. But I just want the listeners to have a full understanding Obviously, what we stand for at the core is inclusion. I mean, and what does that mean? That means that means equal opportunity for everyone. That means voices being heard. That means um, wealth opportunities for everyone in tech. That means not looking at one homogeneous demographic to blame or to solve all the problems, but also just looking at like everyone. When we when we started doing this diverse inclusion work, uh, we, we mapped out the ecosystem and also mapped out what does it mean to be inclusive from a company culture standpoint, but from a uh, messaging standpoint, from a solution standpoint, what does it mean to be inclusive? And and we feel like while it's also important to focus on solutions for uh, uh, individual demographic, like there's legendary tech conference with Lee in Pittsburgh, there's, you know, black and brown founders with Ania, there's, um, you know, uh, other other groups that does great work that, that, that are identity focused, uh, like the Latina Startup Alliance. Those solutions are needed and are very, very, very important, and we need to support those. Uh, but also the, the, new, the need for inclusion is kind of where we feel like it, it also should be a a big goal, um, but also the solution that we need to focus on as well. The kind of things that we don't stand for is things that are anti-inclusive at the core, especially if it's not connected to a individualized identity solution. So if you're not for inclusion, you're not for diversity, that doesn't align with who we are and align with our values. I'm glad that you actually touched on inclusion and what it means to you, because that kind of segues to my next question. You have this amazing event called Tech Inclusion. So for my listeners who are not familiar with your event, I would love for you to explain what goes on there and why you have the event. 
Sure, I'll take that. So we this is our fourth annual Tech Inclusion here in San Francisco, and we also have events across the globe focused on solutions to diversity and inclusion in tech. So we bring together the whole tech industry to focus on solutions. And um, this year, our conference theme is Voices of Innovation, so really highlighting underrepresented voices uh, who are building the latest technology and culture that are really driving the future, all of our futures. And we started this, as Wayne said, severe need to focus on diversity and inclusion in the tech industry. There's across the across the, the whole organizations from hiring to promotion to retention and and leadership in our companies, and then also looking at education, K through 12, higher ed, coding schools, boot camps, how our education systems need to change and uh, really highlighting some of those schools that are working to create change. Also in policy and and government and the work that um, policymakers are doing to help create change as well as storytelling and the, the stories that we tell make a big difference. If you can be it, you can see it. If you see it, you can be it. And um, in order to to really see that what is possible, I need to be able to see it. I need to be able to hear it in the media. I need to be able to see it in magazines and games and and other areas where I see myself. And I love that you say that. And that's one of the reasons I have the podcast is because I want people to be able to see and believe that there are people that look like them in the tech industry. And also one thing I want to touch on with your event, how we went through the discussion of what inclusion is. Your event is so unique to me when it comes to the inclusion factor, because you're not just basing it on people of color. It's also disabilities that are in the tech industry. And I just want to touch on and get your perspective of how do you view your conference varying from other diversity and inclusion conferences that are out there? Yes. Um, we, we, in terms of how we differ, um, we don't look at one. I want to disclaim that, that we don't look at like our conferences competitive with other conferences, because I believe there's a, you know, everyone doing this work, there's a, there's a great need for these conferences and why we're doing them. I was talking with a colleague of mine a couple of days ago, and we were talking about how we were all, a group of us were hanging out in New York in 2012, and there was not a single conference that focused on black people, or black people in tech. And now you look around today, there's so many, right? And it's awesome. Um, but what Melinda and I sort of doing back in really planning this in 2014 and, you know, today is stick with the theme of inclusion. And that means gender neutral bathrooms. Melinda does a great job in terms of making sure that, that every, every, almost every possibility in terms of accessibility is addressed. That means from the, the, how much width is in the aisles. Um, in terms of how we, we lay out the, the tables and environment, because we want to make sure people who are, who, who, uh, we want to make sure the spaces which are accessible. We want to make sure that there's closed captioning and, and people who, uh, for, for people who need that type of service. And then also from the content you see, but also from the speakers on stage, a, you know, so, and we start this work as, you know, living and, and, and experience some examples of, of not being good things in diversity, inclusion, and tech. And we've learned over the years, but one of the things we also learned is, and that we know from the beginning is you can't be what you can't see, and that people voices need to be heard. So we also we also make sure that everyone, from people who um, are ingenuous 
people who may have a hidden invisible disability, people from all different races, genders, um, uh, ethnic groups in a, uh, are represented on stage. And we will try to tackle it from the content, from the experience that you walk in the door, from the language that we use, the welcome among the signs, banners, the website is inclusive from the from start to scratch. I don't know about other people, but I truly appreciate that you take the time to look at even the little things like you said about the width of the aisle and gender norms for in regards to the restrooms. That's so important. And that's also sometimes that those little things that people forget at conferences can that can really make someone feel out of place. So things like that are what I mean when I say that your conference is unique. And also, we didn't mention that your conference does take place in more than one place. I know you guys are in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, but the conference does take place in other places. So do you want to tell my listeners what other locations that you guys have your conference? Yeah, sure. So this is our first fourth annual conference in San Francisco. July, we had Tech Inclusion New York for the third time. We're also um, coming up in November, going to London for the second year on November 26th. And uh, next year, we'll also do a Tech Inclusion DC Summit early in the year. In March, Tech Inclusion Melbourne. It'll be our second annual Tech Inclusion Melbourne. And we've we've done uh, events all across the U.S. as well um, in a total of, I think, 14 different cities to date. Wow, that's very impressive. And I do have to ask because you've gone to various locations, just traveling in general, as well as with the conference. So you've seen various tech ecosystems. Is there one that you think is more advanced than another or one that really stood out to you? No. <laughs> I would say but, that, but, that it, but, go ahead. Okay, my, well, my answer would be that uh, each each ecosystem, each city and region's tech ecosystem is is different, and the the drivers in the tech industry are different. The um, inequities across the tech ecosystem are a little different. But what we're finding is that in every city we go to, there is a significant problem around diversity in tech and that in in diversity and inclusion in tech, and that is largely because in no matter where you go. Cities and tech hubs have really looked at Silicon Valley as a template, as a model, and and are replicating that around the world. And that template is flawed. It's not inclusive of everyone. It doesn't include everyone from venture capital to education to, to the workplace. There's really a need to rethink that model to be more inclusive of everyone. And I completely agree. I think, I even think that everyone copying the same models, not the greatest idea because every situation is unique. Every group of people you work with is unique. And it's almost like, why are we even following this particular model to try to make everyone, it's almost like you're becoming uniform in the tech industry. I think the whole purpose of tech and the way that tech is always changing is to be innovative and try something new. Yeah, and it means that we're we're losing out. We're we're losing out on innovation that could be happening. We're 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 not um, we're not supporting underrepresented entrepreneurs in the way that we should and could to really build new uh, brand new ideas that have never been thought of. And 
and it has a real impact on our local economies, on our local cities. You know, even when you look at San Francisco, we've lost a lot of the diversity of the city because the tech industry has priced people out and is not hiring underrepresented people. Exactly. And speaking of hiring or actually let's kind of switch a little bit to funding underrepresented people, you both started a new role at Backstage Capital. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And tell my listeners a little bit of the role that you're doing and how you're helping the community. Yeah. Melinda both took roles as director of program development at Backstage uh, for the Backstage Accelerator at Backstage Capital. So what that means is that, uh, let me give a back up a little bit on that is so backstage accelerator we're launching four accelerators in 2019 in four different cities la london philadelphia and we just announced detroit and so we're going to be taking six companies for three months and put through this accelerator experience and helping them accelerate their companies um of course with the name accelerator but we've provided 100k in capital for five percent equity which is kind of industry standard and so our roles with that is to really help find what the the entrepreneurs experience those companies startup companies experiences to accelerate but also evaluating the ecosystem in those those cities to support those companies and we decided to work with christy and christy pitts and arlen hamilton and backstage and the entire backstage crew to really have an impact around the entire technical system support um traditionally what we call underrepresented entrepreneurs now underestimated entrepreneurs to be successful and i do want to clarify for the accelerator is it tech companies only or any startup we don't really have a, a category a category or investment thesis around looking for just tech startups or or one you know one type of company and what we tell them want to just apply it doesn't matter stage certain metrics at this time to supply. Awesome. And I also have to ask the question that I'm sure everyone's thinking, how's it to work with Arlen's team at Backstage? It's fun. I would say, I would say it's fun. The team has grown so much in the past two years. You know, it's caused all where Arlen, you know, her story, sleeping on uh, at the airport in SFO, raising her first one, two million dollars, work bringing on Christy. And then those two just, you know, went from two people, seven people, now 20 plus people. And, and, and one thing that I've learned the past couple of weeks as we both recently joined is, you know, all our house people are working with people who, who are reflective of what she has done to get where she's at. Those characteristics, and that includes grit, that includes people who value self-care, that includes people with empathy, that includes people who care about the overall mission and values of doing this work. And it's awesome because it's less about historically hiring the tech industry on pedigree and more about hiring people on ability and passion and like mind and value. That's great. I can't wait to see what happens in the future. It seems like there's been a lot of growth, like you said, and it seems like it's a great company to work for. So I hope everything continues to grow for Backstage. We all hope the same thing. And, and there's, a, there's some other chatter in the back channels that, that I would like to address is that I hope everyone looks at what the work at all in the Backstage crew is doing and not with a sense of hope that this is going to work with a sense of how can I, yes, we hope, but also how can we help make this work? There's three values with the Backstage Accelerator. One is the text of village, two is diversity and strength, and the third one is successful all. 
And so everyone can look at this. So what we're trying to do is not about Melinda Wayne. It's not about the all the name Christie. It's about this ecosystem. So people come on a mindset, success for all. I think that'd be cool. And you know what? That's a great mindset to have. And I think not even just obviously backstage started, but that's a great mindset to have overall being in the industry, being whatever you do. So I think that's great advice. One thing that I failed to mention when we were getting started is that you guys are married. So how is it being married and working on ventures together? Uh, it's kind of like that. Honestly, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's awesome. It's, it's, it's awesome. I feel like we are breaking the traditional stereotypes of expectations of how married couples live, work, experience life together. Like, you know, traditionally, you look at how American history has conformed the the expectations or the realm of marriage is like, oh, men go out and do this, and women go out and do this, or the women do this, and men do that. And they just think it's wrong, right? I mean, it's so sexist, it's so just backwards thinking, like in the 80s, 70s, and all that. And give or take, as humans, we have evolved a lot since then. We have the internet now, you know? But those traditions and stereotypes has truly affected American culture and, and, and the world culture in terms of how you look at marriage and communication. And and with Melinda and I is that, you know, we've met at a different stage in our lives where our values align. We came in relationship. We met at a great time where both of us had a sense of growth of, to where we valued, you know, empathy, communication, trust, um, other things that I do for fun, change the world, impact, and started off with, hey, there's no secrets. Hey, we like this. Hey, let's talk. Hey, let's hang out. Hey, let's do this. Hey, why can't we do this together? How can I support you? How can you support me? And we just taking that as a foundation, you know, like in everything we've done. And then, you know, we both have grown individually and together over the years. And we're also just like, well, we just need to communicate that growth. You know, is if we see one of us changing, one of us, you know, doing something, so let's talk about it. Let's pull it back in. Let's talk about it. And so that's kind of how you know it's been been going. It's been awesome. Yeah, I agree completely. And the only thing I would add is that it's I think. Being in an interracial marriage while working on diversity and inclusion is just extra illuminating. You know, we have we have really powerful conversations at the dinner table, <laughs> and um, and and you know, it's in our day to day life we're we're seeing how each of us is being portrayed and reacted to in in our daily lives in in a way that I think. Um, is, is unique and powerful for us. And that's so interesting to hear. I've had a few married couples actually on the podcast and everybody has different, a different, you know, code of, of standards, I guess you could call it, or different advice for how it is to work with their spouse. So I always feel like it's a good question to ask. But we've been talking about your joint ventures together, and I kind of want to rewind and talk about your individual journeys into tech. And so let's start with Melinda. Melinda, you weren't always a techie. You eased into the industry. So do you want to start off with how you got into tech and the inclusion space? Yeah, sure. It was. I actually started out in cultural anthropology way back when I studied at cultural anthropology um, 
and how societies change, how individuals uh, catalyze change in society, really looking at how I could create large-scale social change, social impact. And I moved from that into art and using media as a way to create change. And that actually was my first kind of pathway into tech was via visual art. So via Photoshop and Illustrator and and film. And so I went from I went from art school and uh, being an artist in New York to LA and became a filmmaker. I was a filmmaker for about 10 years working on uh, mostly documentary films and also some, some mainstream films as well. Really, uh, most of them social impacts related from HIV AIDS in South Africa to women's rights in Turkey, a lot of climate change and environmental related films. I also worked on the West Wing and, and some other more mainstream TV. And after about 10 years of doing that, part of why I left the film industry actually was because of the lack of diversity and inclusion and the, the really heightened mm, sexual harassment that was kind of the every, every day of the film industry. I didn't really realize at the time the whole of, of, of it, but it's even worse than tech industry. Um, and there's a lot to be solved in that industry. So I left that, that work and started to use storytelling and media in order to create social impact with um, with government organizations, with social impact organizations, and and doing a lot of brand strategies with um, with uh, benefit corporations and and big NGOs, and I did that for several years. Uh, I ended up getting a job offer from a client, um, and which brought me to San Francisco. I, I accepted the job. I was an executive at an engineering firm here in San Francisco, working on health on, in the healthcare industry, working on marketing and branding and culture, and then also working with the nation's largest healthcare systems, helping them to reduce their energy waste and water consumption using technology and behavior change strategies. And I realized pretty quickly as an executive that I was not in an inclusive environment at all. <laughs> it was a pretty miserable experience for me and I, I hit a pretty hard glass ceiling there where I, it took me a while to figure out what was going on and finally I, I realized that the, the culture around me was really not um, set up for my success. I, I as a, the only woman in a leadership team of, of 19 people, it just wasn't, um, wasn't set up for me. It wasn't, uh, they weren't ready for a woman leader. And I started to realize that I looked at some of our numbers and found that I wasn't alone, that, that we had a lot of work to do internally. And so I put some strategies into place to really start to change that. And then I hired some people to take on those strategies. And, and I left, I left that job as an executive to start Change Catalyst, really working to change the industry as a whole, the tech industry as a whole. Very interesting and very interesting to point out that even you going in at an executive level, you could understand the issue of inclusion. Usually at the executive level, people do have that issue, but they're not as vocal about it. So I just find it interesting that you actually saw the numbers, you obviously felt the issue, and you decided to try to make some change with that. 
Yeah, I think that um, there's a, there are uh, a few different reasons why people don't speak up at the executive level. One is that, you know, I spoke up and it made my life even more miserable. It, it is really difficult um, it, uh, in that position. You, if you're the only one, you're you're holding, you know, in, in my case, you're holding 50% of the world's population on your shoulders as one one woman in. Um, and that's a lot of weight. That's a lot of weight to carry when you're just trying to do your job. And so I don't fault anyone for continuing to do their job because it's hard enough as it is, um, let alone try to create the change um, in an organization as well. And, and there's a lot of studies that show that women and underrepresented minorities are penalized in the workplace if you do speak up. So um, so it, that's the why we, there's such an important for allyship and, and not only male allyship, but um, allyship across all of us. We all need to be allies for each other. Um, so, uh, so yes, it, it's really hard as an executive, A, to recognize it when you are at that level, but also to, to put your foot down and, um, and, and do on top of your regular day job, do all, it, work to create change as well. It's, it's, it's a really hard thing to do. I can definitely understand that because you have been in that position. Could you give some advice you have for someone who's in that position? Maybe they're afraid to speak up. What advice do you have for them? And 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 honestly, looking back, I probably would have done it differently. What I do, knowing what I know now. Um, so I think part of it is knowing knowing where you are and doing the research on the data. You know what? What are your turnover rates for different populations? What What are your promotion rates? What is What is the pay equity across gender and race and disability, for example? Uh, really looking at the data can give you a much bigger, better picture of what's really happening. Also, I looked at our engagement data as well and across demographics, and that's that's a really important part of it too. The next step would be to do an inclusion survey to really see what's happening um, at that level. So that would be the first is, is measure and and look at the data so you have some understanding of what's happening and you have some fodder for discussion. The second though is that depending on the the reception that of the team, like where are is your team around being able to talk about diversity and inclusion? Are they ready to talk about diversity and inclusion? And if they're not, and in my case they weren't. There are other strategies that you can take to get at some of the same issues. So we started a wellness program, for example, where we really, um, we offered physical wellness programs, um, gym memberships, and, and we had some, some team competitions. And that actually helped with our engagement numbers quite a bit, particularly among underrepresented people. And then looking at emotional intelligence, looking at mindfulness, looking at some other ways to get at how do you how do you get people to really think about themselves and how they're interacting with other people. So um, hopefully your culture is be is is at a point where you are more receptive to diversity and inclusion conversations and then and then it's really looking at designing a a, a strategy. So assessing where you are now and then really looking at the systems and processes that need to change over time and 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 then enrolling people in that change from the beginning, enrolling executives, enrolling people across your organization to create change. 
Melinda, those were some amazing tips that you gave. And one thing I want to actually backtrack on a little bit is you mentioned being an ally in the workplace. Do you have any tips or advice for ways that people could be better allies? Well, funny you should ask that. My TED talk just went live on TED.com yesterday, and it's all about allyship, how to be an ally. Um, so I, I would say that readers or listeners should, um, should take a look at the TED talk because um, it's nine and a half minutes of exactly that, to, um, talking about ways that you can be a better ally to, to others in the workplace. Um, you know, from, from, from the really quick and easy things, like just do no harm, which often, you know, we harm, we harm people without intending to just by the language that we use and, um, and not really listening, not really allowing other people to, to speak their mind to mentoring or sponsoring somebody from an underrepresented group, whether that's, um, another woman or, um, or, or anybody, um, who's underrepresented to, to really, you know, stepping out in a bigger way, becoming an advocate, becoming vocally creating change across the ecosystem. I think with those little snippets of the preview, it sounds like of your TED talk that those should at least even start to get people thinking. Yeah. And it's, you know, part of allyship is really taking that extra moment of thought before you speak. Exactly. I will definitely have the link to your TED Talk in the show notes for this show. This episode of Black Tech Unplugged is brought to you by Adnocrats. Looking to grow your business at affordable prices? Now you can with targeted audio ads on iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Find out why brands are flocking to Adnocrats by visiting adnocrats.co. That's A-D-N-O. C-R-A-T-S dot co to learn more. Now back to the show. Well, Wayne, we didn't forget about you. So you, on the other hand, as appeared to Melinda, have always kind of been in the tech industry and you're actually a serial entrepreneur. So I want to start with what was your first business venture? Oh, great question. And <laughs> it's usually not asking that way, uh, but I love it. Um, so my first business venture was in high school. I was a graphic designer and, and I liked to draw and paint. So mm-hmm. I used to paint on people's, uh, my classmates' jeans, uh, with like graffiti letters with Mario, Mario artists, uh, Mario characters, like this like waterproof ink and people, they paid me to do it. And so people wanted custom jeans style with their name, with these characters on it. I used to join in clothes, join in jeans, and that was the style back in the in the the eighties. Show my age here, but that was the style back in the eighties. It's probably never came back there. Um, <laughs> so then I understand you like the drawing, and have to admit that's pretty awesome that people just let you draw over their stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, when did I was you? Good. Yeah. I believe you. And when did you get over into, I guess, the, I don't want to say more technical side because graphic design and doing designing is very technical, but I guess more into the, what people consider, quote unquote, the tech industry, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So um, not too long after, you know, I went to, uh, I didn't go to a big university. I went to a, a school for computer graphic design using Photoshop and Illustrator and, and more at that time for print design. 
Um, but the reason that's so relevant, because at the time, like, that's essentially what a code school is today, right? So it's like a, you know, a, a one year taught me technical skills and got a job doing that afterwards. So, uh, fast forward a couple of years later, um, you know, over my time frame, I worked at two newspapers, one television station, and prior to the television station job, I was in IT. And so went from design to IT world and there I'm I'm like doing the, the, the technical work of the very you know, the early internet days. Like setting up, you know, internet routers where like, you know, we go to a co work, like I'm at the WeWork building here in Oakland where the backstage studio has an office at and and there's internet connection here. And so some company, somebody had to come set up that router. I used to do that job. And I also had a job where I used to go to people's houses and help them get connected to dollar internet. And and that just kinda like being kind of been my uh, was my early pathway into tech, um, more on the technical side in terms of networking, wiring RG forty five cables, setting up routers, managing web hosting um on servers. And so with all that, I was like like super connected to how the internet was evolving. And which led me to like being, you know, as North Carolina being very up to date with what's happening in different big, big tech markets, such as, you know, what's happening at that time, San Francisco didn't have a tech scene. It was just straight Silicon Valley. Okay. And then there was, there was a little bit of tech scene in different, you know, different cities across New York and then uh, Austin, Texas. Um, and so I did a tech startup in, um, 2009 because I at that time was just seeing all the startups launching at South by Southwest, like Twitter launched at South by Southwest, Foursquare launched at South by Southwest, all the tech companies that read about in the blogs. And so I did a tech startup in 2009 with uh, a co-founder, Lawrence, and I, and we basically created what was a hyper-local, location-based, um, small business, well, I wouldn't say business, but BGC um, checking app using around when the very first iPhone launched. And then we created a social network for all the local businesses in the research training part, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel area that have their own web page to interact with users real time using their smartphones. And this is like, like iPhone one, iPhone two. And, uh, that led me to my, my kind of real kind of, you know, big kind of first tech startup. And so from that point, you have your tech startup and you were in North Carolina at that time, correct? Yeah. Yes. So you eventually make the move to Silicon Valley. Explain to my listeners that whole journey and thought process of making that big transition. Yeah. So, you know, 2008 and now we have a tech startup. We're, we, you know, not taking any, we bootstrap, we're not taking any angel VC money. We, you know, some of us, we didn't know what it was at the time. And, uh, and, but yet we, we created a sustainable business. And at that time, you know, we had early Twitter. It was all tech. And then, you know, if you were black on Twitter back in 2008, 7, 8, and 9, you knew each other. It was a small world. It wasn't like it is today. You could name the black tech entrepreneurs uh, across America on like two hands. And yeah. one in Silicon Valley, while there were a lot out there, they mm-hmm. were not as public. They were not as, it was not like they are now. Let's put, I will put it like that. We didn't know who they were. They were out there, but we didn't know who they were. And so um, I had a colleague, Agile Bitten, who was, in, who was in Charlotte. I was in Raleigh. You know, we knew each other because she had a web blog, Black Web 12. 
And we mm-hmm. was like, we were tech entrepreneurs. We, we can name the other few tech entrepreneurs on the East Coast and Midwest like us. How about we go to Silicon Valley and, and, and try to, you know, raise capital and learn about the ecosystem. And then what we realized is like, well, why don't we create an incubator and accelerator? And we start talking to some of the well-known investors at that time because we were active in tech to go to South by and meet all these people. Even though we was in North Carolina, we, we knew who they were. Sort of building relationships with these individuals, uh, well-known investors today. And, and they was like, yeah, you come out here, we support you. You come out here, we support you. There, there needs to be a program for, for underrepresented entrepreneurs and, and there's not one now. And, and then in 2011, the data came out from CB Insights that said 1% of venture capital goes to black and Latino founders. Of, and 1% in 2011. And the data was actually skewed. It wasn't 100% correct. And we talked to CB Insights who put the data. They, they would tell you this. It was flawed data because they actually grouped black and Latino together at the time. Oh, and that okay. data actually should have been split, should have been split out. And it was, and there was also no data around gender. And mm. so it's actually in 2011, less than 1% of venture capital going to black and Latino founders. And there was hardly no data on Angel, right? And so we decided to do something about it, right? And so uh, I was at a t- point in time where a lot of people want to change in their lives. And so we decided to get to rent a house in Mountain View, launch an incubator accelerator for underrepresented founders in Mountain View's heart of Silicon Valley. And senior heard about what we were doing. Wall Street Journal heard about what we were doing. And senior filmed us with Soul Out of Brian, a documentary called Silicon Valley, New Promised Land. Um, that documentary went live in 2011. Although personally, and everybody knows this, I wasn't happy with the outcome of the documentary in terms of the content. They could have done a better job, but I had to realize also at that time, well-known black people, black people are doing tech startups was not a thing. You had New York producers trying to create a tech show and there was no right roadmap for that mm. and ever. And so we try to tell them that people want to see us pitching our startups. People want to see us, you know, working on giving product feedback. People want to see us meet with investors. People want to see us coding. People want to see us stay up all night working. It was like, people don't want to watch that. I'm like, yes, they do. So they try to create a real world documentary instead of a startup documentary. And so that happened. But the outcome was priceless because in 2011, never before you see black people, women, underrepresented people on TV talking about creating a tech company, talking about pitching to investors in Silicon Valley, pitching to well-known VCs, pitching at tech companies. That never existed. Like, on TV. And so the the impact for that was priceless. And so they still don't see as much as you need to today as well. But the outcome impact for that was priceless. And so eventually I um, decided to move to San Francisco. We set up the accelerator in San Francisco in 2012. And I ran it for another five, six months. And I learned the ecosystem still wasn't ready to talk about diversity and inclusion tech. And then I ended up creating another program a couple years later. Um, try to raise a venture fund, failed at that, but I learned a lot in 2014. And then uh, created another program, a nonprofit, to focus on underestimated founders. I created a pre accelerator program. So that happened in 2014, 2015, right before Melinda and I started working together. And so after creating all of these accelerators and businesses, I know you just mentioned you learned a lot. What are some of the lessons you learned? Well, if I were to say anything I learned in terms of trying to raise a fund and then also work historically had a passion to see underrepresented entrepreneurs, you know, use technology in the world. That's one of my life missions. 
my one of my biggest things I learned is that that you can't do that without taking care of yourself first. And I have different mentors, different advisors, different friends put me to the side, kinda of know when I was struggling, but wasn't speaking up about it, kinda of seeing what I was doing and wasn't speaking up about it. It was like, Are you okay? Are you okay? And I wasn't at times. No, I experienced depression, I experienced, you know, imposter syndrome, something Melinda I talk about. And a lot of times I wasn't. And I had to take a time of self-reflection and take a time out at times to basically say, how can I make sure I'm okay if I'm going to try to help others? And we have to do that. We have to make sure as humans, as individuals, like, you know, put our own oxygen mask on first. Now, we talk a lot about self-care and meditation and being present. But that was probably the biggest lesson I learned. And after that, everything else is almost tangible. If you okay, you can you can learn. Okay, you can take me. So if you okay, you can grow. If you okay, you can you can try to help others. If if you okay, you can set goals. But if you're not, you start with yourself first. And that's a great point. And that actually segues into a top, a couple of topics I want to cover because both of you are very open and you talk about your struggles as well as your accomplishments with being in the tech industry and being in the inclusion movement. And Wayne, as you mentioned, you've talked about your depression. And I think depression, anxiety and imposter syndrome are three things that you all have talked about, but that are three major issues that go on in the tech industry. So I want to just touch on them briefly why do you think those three particular issues are hitting us so hard right now? I probably just look at the world. Look at look at especially America, mm-hmm. but the world as a whole. There's all these other countries that historically been in wars. There's other countries that um, uh, are dealing with extreme government theft and 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 poverty. Um, and you dealing with you know you know with our current president. In America, and you're dealing with the Me Too movement, and you're dealing with the Black Lives Matter movement, the shootings. We all need help right now. Like, like, yes, people had it bad. I'm not gonna say worse. Had it bad in their generations before us today. They had it bad, but this is a different. I'm saying worse again, a different level of trauma, of triggering, of emotions, of all type of isms that we were dealing with in 2018. And as humans, we are not ready for it. We, we have to take a step back and look at imposter syndrome, self-care, uh, depression, and, and all these other topics to like, okay, if, you know, if we're gonna survive this, and we are, we gotta make sure we, we prepared emotionally. And if we look at what's been succeeding in our society, in our world, it has been capitalism and it's been physical activities. Who, what makes the most money in 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 America in terms of jobs? Professional coaches. Mm. We don't look who is a, is another group, uh, which is another homo, mostly homogeneous group of white men who make most money. Professional sport coaches. And then the next group is corporate business enterprise. And the wealth gap in our country is widening like crazy. So you deal with all the other isms that we have in the world right now, the Me Too, dealing with all these trigger movements, and, and, and police shootings and all that, and people are trying not to lose control of power, align that with the wealth gap. As American society, 
but we're in, we're in real time right now. And we need we need to embrace this as humans and how it's affecting us emotionally and, and understand that it's, it's okay to talk about how you feel. It's okay to have feelings. It's okay to get professional help. And that's so true. And I think we're in a time where we're learning how to sh- shift that paradigm and be more open for our feelings and thoughts, but we still have such a long way to go to successfully navigate that space and yeah. to just be okay. Yeah, absolutely agree, agree. agree. I think all, you know, compounding all of that is that when people tell you all over and over throughout your life that you can't do something, that you aren't good enough, you start to believe it yourself. And, and that's where imposter syndrome can really get the better of you. And, and we need to help each other to lift each other out of that, to reinforce the, all of the amazing skills that each of us has and to encourage each other to take risks, to take chances, to step in to new opportunities and really to make that change for ourselves. And that's very true. And hopefully, do you have, I guess, when you find yourself in a rut or you need to uplift yourself, do you have any tips or advice for my listeners? I know everyone's different and it takes, there's different methods for everyone, but from your perspective. Main thing is, is first taking a step back and understanding what self-care means and, and what does emotional intelligence mean. Um, it takes some time to learn those two things. And then the second thing uh, is that um, for us, when I, you know, we both meditate, we both focus on fitness, we take time out to have fun. We have, both of us have motorcycles, Melinda has a bike, I have a bike, and that is so fun for us. Uh, we can travel together and ride and enjoy our experiences. And so um, we, we're different, but that's what makes us happy. That's what keeps us going. And then also just, just over communicate about who we are, how we feel, and what we're thinking, because we shouldn't bother those type of things in. You see well, professional help if you need it. Thank you, Wayne and Melinda, for your time today. Awesome. You're welcome. My, our pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having Thanks for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the podcast on Instagram at Black Tech Unplugged. And if you want to follow on any other social media channels, make sure to go to blacktechunplugged.com and all the information is there. And if you haven't already, please go subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It would help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.